0: Well, I invite you to open a Bible and to turn with me to John chapter 14. We're doing a study on the Last Supper of Jesus Christ, the dinner he had with his disciples on the night before he died. And we've already been studying through chapter 13. And now this is our fifth sermon, studying this dinner as we begin chapter 14 tonight. And the dinner has taken a turn for the worse. Um, It started out very nice, Jesus washing everybody's feet, but now Judas just left. Jesus said that he was going to betray him. Uh, Jesus has predicted and prophesied that Peter is going to deny him before the night is over, before the rooster crows. He's going to deny him three different times. And then if you're looking at chapter 13, look at verse 33. Here was probably the most distressing thing that Jesus had said. He said, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I mean, what's going on with Judas walking out into the dark of night, and how is Peter going to deny him three times? But did Jesus just say that he's going to leave us, and where he's going, we can't go with him? For three years we've been following Jesus around. And now there's going to be a separation between us and Jesus. Well, Jesus sensing that the disciples must have been troubled at this point. This is what he says in chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. This is our text for tonight, and it's really one of the great promises in all of the Bible. John chapter 14, verses 1, and we're only going to get through verse 3 tonight. It says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in God. So there's a sense of trouble that is brewing here at this dinner. It's falling apart. One of the disciples is going to betray him. One's going to deny him, and Jesus is leaving, but he says, hey, you got to trust me. Just like you trust in God, you need to trust in me because if I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I'm going to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come, and I'm going to get you and take you to be with me where I am so that you may be there Also, Where's Jesus talking about? Where is he going? He's talking about going to heaven here. And he's saying that he's going to come and get his disciples and take them to be with him in a place he's preparing for them that we refer to as heaven. Now, if you know what happens in history, if you've ever read Fox's book of martyrs, outside of the biblical account, we know the historical tradition of what happens to these disciples. Does Jesus come back and get the disciples and take them to heaven? Well, they die is what happens. In fact, a lot of them are are killed. They're martyred in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, tradition tells us that Peter is crucified on a cross, and he's crucified how on a cross? Does anybody know? Upside down, right? John, who writes this gospel that we're reading, maybe he wrote it while he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, who we think lived the longest out of any of the disciples. Well, history tells us he was boiled in water is how he died. That's the tradition, at least. So who is Jesus making this promise to? That he's going to prepare a place, and then he's going to come back and get them. Well, there still must be a group of people who is going to experience that coming of Jesus Christ to get them and to take them to be with him in heaven. And we might be those people. What do you think about heaven? What do you think happens after you die, or do you even believe that Jesus might come back before you die? These are the questions that are raised by Christianity, and we got to start where Jesus says to start, is there's a lot of things in the world that will trouble you, but what you need to do is you need to believe in God, believe also in me, which is an amazing statement because however you take it, when you say that, believe in God, believe also in me, that's Jesus elevating himself to the level of God. Some people think maybe he's saying it like, since you believe in God, believe also in me. Or maybe it's a double command, believe in God and believe in me. However you take it, what Jesus is doing is saying, hey, if you're going to say that you believe in God, well, you got to believe in me. I know I told you I'm leaving, and I know I told you all these bad things are happening, but do you trust me, Jesus is saying. See, Christianity is not a bunch of facts that you believe. It is someone that you believe in, and that is a big difference okay point number one let's get it down like this if you're taking notes tonight you got to know who you are trusting in. okay jesus is saying I- i'm going to come and get you and take you to heaven but here's what's amazing any passage in the bible that talks about jesus coming to get his people his disciples his christians it also encourages you in that same passage to believe in jesus And it even gives you specific things to believe in about Jesus. So write down a couple of other passages. We're not going to turn there, but write them down. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 to 18 is another passage that talks about Jesus coming to get us. And you could also write down the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 talks about Jesus in the twinkling of an eye getting his people. And in all of the passages in the Bible where it says this reality that Jesus is going to come and get his people, it encourages you in those same passages to believe in Jesus, okay? Now, what do you need to believe in Jesus to be saved? Nobody yell out the answer because I want everybody to ask themselves this question, okay? What, well, there's a lot of talk about faith, and, and really, in, in English, we use the word belief and, or to believe, and we talk about faith, and we talk about trusting. We use three English words, but really in the Greek language, those are translations of one Greek word, pistuo. So whether you say, I believe it, or I trust it, or I have faith in it, those are three ways in the scripture to say the same thing. What do you have to believe to be saved? What do you believe, and then because you believe that, that is how you can know you are going to heaven. The Bible is very clear that we have to believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So I'm asking you right now, what do you need to believe to know you are going to heaven here tonight? Now, this isn't something somebody else can answer. And I'm bringing this up. I have brought this up at our church before, and I'll probably bring it up again. But here's what happens to me. I meet a lot of people. The Lord is bringing some new people in this new year to our church. And I talk to a lot of people. And I ask this question over and over again because I believe it's a very important question. One of the most important words is the gospel. And I ask people, what is the gospel? I'm like one of those annoying guys asking people that question, all right? And I get some very interesting answers about the gospel, answers that show people don't really know. So I'm asking you right now, what is the gospel? When Jesus says to believe in me, what is he saying that you need to believe in to be saved? All right? Because I don't understand how someone can tell me that they're saved if they can't tell me the gospel. Does that make sense to everybody? The gospel is the power of God to save you. So you're going to say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, but then you can't tell me the gospel, which is the power of God that saves you. Do you see a big problem that we have there? Okay. So what is the gospel message. We, we break it down into three things, and we get this from 1 Corinthians 15. We get it from Acts chapter 17. The first thing is we got to know who Jesus is. Let's put it down like this. You got to know that Jesus is the Christ, okay? Jesus is the Christ. Hopefully, maybe you already wrote this down in answer to the question. We try to teach our kids here this. We try to teach our young people this. We want everybody to know who Jesus is. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, And Christ specifically is a word that means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, they would say Messiah is how they would say it. And in the New Testament, we say Christ. That's the Greek way to say it. But there were three people that were anointed in the Old Testament. Prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, and kings were anointed. And Jesus is the only one who's all three. He is the anointed one that's been prophesied about for hundreds and thousands of years before he showed up. He is the one who came from God to save us, the anointed one. See, if you don't start out with a Jesus who is the Son of God, then you're believing in the wrong person, and that doesn't save you. You have to know who you're trusting in. And then you've got to know what he did. Jesus, get this down if you're taking notes, Jesus died for our sin. Maybe you've already written this down because you've heard it before, but these are three essential things I think that we've got to know from 1 Corinthians 15, from 1 Thessalonians 4.14, that he died for you that you had a problem between you and God, that you had fallen short of the glory of God, you had sinned, and now that ruined, that was a rift between you and God, but Jesus came and he paid for your sin. He died for it, and he offers you his righteousness, and he took on your sin, so now you can be restored in your relationship with God. And then he did something that we sometimes leave out. Jesus rose again. That's what he did. He rose again. On the third day, he rose triumph over Satan, over sin, over death. And what that means is that now Jesus offers not just forgiveness of your sin, but he offers you a new life so that you now don't have to live in sin anymore, a resurrected life that starts right when you believe in him, and it goes after you die, you will be with him. We call it eternal life. It's a quality of life where you know Jesus. So we need to just, when we talk about faith, what is your, we need to ask people with great specificity, what is your faith in? Because just because you believe in God or you believe in the Bible, no, you have to believe, the Bible is very clear, you have to believe in Jesus, in the gospel of Jesus. And if you couldn't tell me that this tonight when you walked in here, that Jesus died for you and then he rose again, and that's what you're putting your trust in, then my question is, how can you be saved if you don't know that? A lot of people, when you ask them, why are they going to heaven, they'll say, well, I prayed a prayer one time. When I was a kid or at this event I went to, I prayed a prayer. Hey, why are you going to heaven? I prayed a prayer. Let me just make it very clear. No one is going to heaven because they prayed a prayer. Okay? Why are you going to heaven? Well, I walked an aisle one time. I had a conversation with the pastor one time. Well, so and so told me I was a Christian one time. All wrong answers. Why are you going to heaven? Because you know Jesus, and Jesus died for you and rose again. It has nothing to do with you, everything to do with Jesus Christ. That's why. There's only one name that gets you into heaven, and it is the name of Jesus. And what's amazing is this gospel, it's the power of God, not just what Jesus did a long ago, it's the power of God to save you. Because when you really trust in Jesus, when you put your faith in him, when you believe in him, however you want to say it, when you know Jesus Christ, it's like you die to your old life and you start living a new life. If any man is in Christ, behold, look at this. The old is gone, the new has come. He is a new creation in Christ. We have to talk about it like that, okay? We have to be this clear with people, okay? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, it means that he's the Christ who died for sin and rose again, okay? What what is faith all about? Go to Hebrews chapter 11. If there's a, a chapter that tries to give us a picture of faith, it's Hebrews chapter 11 as it recounts for us, men and women of God from the Old Testament who trusted in God. And it gives us a definition of faith here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Look what it says here. Hopefully these are familiar words, but look what it says. Faith, this is a beautiful definition, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's knowing you're going to have what you hope for. So we use the word in the scripture, hope, way differently than we use it today. Oh, I hope it doesn't rain. Or I hope my football team wins this weekend. Like an outcome that you're rooting for. No, when we say hope in the New Testament, we mean something you know is going to happen. Something you are sure about. That's what we mean by hope. And faith is when you start to see into the spiritual realm, see. Faith is when you start to see beyond the physical things that we can see, and you start to see in outside of time into eternity, into the age to come, and you start to see that you know, because you know Jesus, you're going to go into the age to come in the presence of Jesus Christ. You're assured of it in your soul. It says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Faith is you starting to have a spiritual life where you have a relationship with a God you cannot see. That's what faith is and it's 100% real. You know you have that relationship. Now, if we start following all the stories of faith, it's gonna talk about this guy, Abel, and it's gonna talk about Enoch and Noah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and it's gonna go through, and it's gonna name all these guys. Let's just make it very clear that nobody in this chapter thought they were having faith to have your best life now, okay? Nobody in this chapter thought that faith Well, the point of faith was to bless them in this life. Everybody in this chapter thought that the point of faith was to get out of this life into the life of Jesus Christ, okay? So if you're a Christian because you want to have a better life now, you are missing the point of Christianity. The point of Christianity is to be with Jesus Christ and to know him. And that means you actually have to leave this life behind. Look at how it describes Abraham. Just one example. Look at verse 8. It says, by faith, Abraham, who was there with his family, but God told him to go. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And Abraham went out, he not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise." Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, well, Abraham, he just had faith. When God gave him a promised land and God told him to go, Abraham was just hoping that he was going to have a better deal in this promised land and that he was going to get set up there and established there. That's why Abraham had faith to obey God because he was hoping for a better deal in this life, right? Look at the next verse, verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is... Not a a city built by men. Abraham, the writer of Hebrews tells us, followed God across the world. He left his family, and he set out for a land of promise because he was looking for a city built by God. And then it says this in verse 13, and now it's making a summary statement about all of these people of faith from the Old Testament. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a, what does it say there, a what? See, there's a city that we want to go to that you can't find on planet earth. That's what faith is all about. I mean, just look at what it says very clearly, that the people of faith, verse 16, underline this, write this down, circle this. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Faith means that I think the next life is better than the life I have now. And I'm looking forward to it. Okay? Now, this might be hard for people to grasp who are living the American dream. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you hear some jokes people are talking about who's running for president, and they start joking about moving to a foreign country, right? Right? Or maybe they even said, like, hey, so-and-so wins the presidency, I'm moving to Canada. And then you think, would you really want to live in Canada? You know? Or well, let's go down south to Mexico. Really? You want to trade America for Mexico? Like, I'm ready to, d- I might even be in for trading America, but what are you going to trade it for around here on planet Earth, right? I mean, I think in our minds, we live in the greatest country on the planet America. You know what I mean? I think that's how we think. Well, let me ask you this. Are you chasing the American dream? or do you have a hope for heaven? Which one is it? You want to have this life right now? You want to do what Americans do? Let's get behind the orange curtain of our county a little bit here tonight. We live in a materialistic culture right here in our county. One of the richest places you can live in on planet earth. We're in it right now. I mean, are we really trying to build bigger barns here? Are we trying to build a life here? Jesus, he tells a story in Luke chapter 12, verses 18 to 21 of a guy who was doing pretty well financially, and he started chasing the American dream, and he said, look at all this stuff I've got. I'm going to build bigger barns, is what the guy says. Man, I'm going to rent a nicer place. I'm going to buy a house. I'm going to remodel the house I got so I can sell it and get a bigger one. I'm going to buy a second house. I'm going to get a boat, Whatever, whatever it is. I know we're not building barns, but there's a lot that we could be thinking about. And the guy says, look at all the stuff. Look at all the the things I've got. Let's build some bigger barns. And Jesus says, fool, tonight your soul is required of you. Who's going to get all your stuff now? Too bad you're not rich towards God. That's what Jesus says in this story about this guy who's going to build bigger barns. Don't be trying to have the better life that you can have now. No, think the better life is coming when there's a city that you're going to live in, a city whose designer and builder is God, a city, it says, the people of faith longed to see. And therefore, God was not ashamed to be called their God. I wonder how God would feel about being called the God of a lot of us Christians here in America. Is he ashamed of us being happy down here, that we would rather be down here live in the American dream than to be with him in his presence in the radiance of his glory? There is a, an all-time low about e- excitement about heaven among Christians today, it seems like to me. You don't hear Christians talking about heaven too much. You don't hear them rooting for Jesus to come back. I have people at church who will openly say things like, I don't think Jesus is coming back in our lifetime. just throw it out. Like, ah, I'm not not sure he's coming back. I mean, I think our faith is getting so low that we're barely trusting in God to do something in this life, much less that he's got something better for us in the next life. And Jesus, he prophesied that this would happen. He said, the love of many is going to grow cold. And when the son of man does come, when I do return, will I even find faith on the earth? Jesus would throw out questions like that. Like who's still going to be trusting in me and looking for me and waiting for me? When I finally do come back, who's going to even be out there looking up, waiting for me to return? Or is everybody going to have given up because it's been so long now and we're getting so comfortable now and we're starting to just feel like we're going to settle in and live out our normal expected life here in America because we're saving for that retirement and we're putting all this away and we got a comfortable situation going on right now. It's kind of like somebody who is a a single person who wants to get married. Do you know anybody like that? Maybe you are somebody like that here tonight. I know this guy, and he was waiting, and he was looking for a wife all of his life. He was looking for a wife, and he dated different people, and he had hopes that different relationships were going to work out, and eventually he kind of came to the realization that in his mind, he was maybe never going to get married, and he was 62 years old. I know this lady and she had dated a bunch of people, and she had hoped that this guy was going to be Mr. Right, and this guy, and she had gotten to a place in her heart where she had been waiting so long for a husband, for God to answer her prayers, for God to give her a man that would love her like Christ loved the church, that eventually she thought it was God's will for her to not be married, and she was just going to be happy as she could be in the Lord being single, and she was 54 years old, and I'm here to tell you that those two people... got married at this church this very day. All right? That's right. That's right. Here it is. And you know what? They they actually kissed each other in public. We have a picture to prove it. And they ran out of here under the tunnel of love. You know what I, you know what I'm talking about? Okay? I mean, I think that this wedding is a great picture. We got a 62-year-old guy who serves Jesus at this church falling in love with a 54-year-old lady who serves Jesus at this church. And a day they had given up hope for happened today. And I'm here to tell you, if you have given up hope that Jesus is coming back, you need to realize that the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming soon. And you will see Jesus whether you believe it or not. That's what I'm here to tell you tonight. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Go, everybody, turn to Revelation chapter 21. And uh, look with me here at what it says about where the city that we are going to spend eternity in, in the presence of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 21, start with me here in verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw, check this out, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. What did it look like when it was coming down out of heaven from God? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I was standing right next to Gary Vasquez as he watched his bride that he's been waiting for for decades walk down the aisle. And he even turned and looked at me and gave me the head nod as she was walking down the aisle like it was worth the wait. Okay, Someday you are going to see coming down out of heaven a city that you will live in called the New Jerusalem. I I can tell you this just like as confident that Gary and Lori got married, and I can say it because I saw it happen here today at the church. It's that confident, but it's in the future. Here's what it says. It's going to happen. Like a bride adorned for her husband, you will see a city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Okay. So when there's a new heavens and there's a new earth, Then we're going to put on display the new Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus has been going to prepare a place for you, this new Jerusalem city. Now, look, if you've got the handout, look at what it says in verse 2. John 14, verse 2. Stay in Revelation 21. We're going to keep reading there. But look at what it says. In my Father's house are many rooms, okay? Now, maybe you've even heard it translated before, in my father's house are many what? Mansions, maybe you've heard before, okay? I'm here to tell you tonight that when Jesus says that his father's house has many rooms or many mansions, how it was translated in the past, that when Jesus says he's going to prepare a place, that place is the new Jerusalem that comes down like a bride adorned for her husband. So what he's talking about in John 14 is what we see revealed here in Revelation 21. And so we got to get into the Greek a little bit here. I want to I show you some Greek words. Here's a word I want you to write down, meno. Okay, write this word down, M-E-N-O. Oh, that, Or that's how you can write it down in Greek. Now, this is the second Greek word we've taught you in a row here at Compass Bible Church. I'm not trying to teach you the whole language, okay? I am trying to teach you a couple of words, though, that I want you to uh, know because we're going to keep seeing these words over and over. Now, meno is the verb, okay? And usually the way it's translated in a lot of translations is to abide or to dwell, Okay. Now I don't like those translations because we don't use those words. Where do you abide? You know, we say, what's your address, right? Where where do you dwell in the evenings? No, we we say, where do you go home? Okay. So uh, these are, uh, these are words we're not really using. I think the way that we would say it is to remain or stay. That's what meno means means I'm going to I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to remain here. Like this is my my home would be a way to say it. This is where I live. Now, the word for rooms when it says in my father's house are many rooms or how sometimes it's translated mansions. That's the noun form of this word mone, okay? Monet, M O N E if you want to write it down in English. And sometimes this word mone is translated um, uh, different ways, like mansions or an abode or a dwelling place, which I don't think are super helpful since we don't use that kind of language right now in the way that we talk to one another. So I would think of a mone as it's translated here, a room, or maybe even a home is the way that I would say Like, I'm preparing for you a a place for you. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, many abodes, many homes, okay? Many apartments, condos, however you want to say it. Like, what you're going to have is a place to live in my Father's house, and then we're going to unveil this new Jerusalem where you are going to live. I'm here to tell you that if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he is the Christ, you've trusted in his death and you have trusted in his resurrection, that whether you feel it or not tonight, whether you've waited a long time and you've kind of given up hope or not, someday you will be in the new Jerusalem. You're going there, okay? That's the reality. I want Just think about that for a minute. There is gonna come a moment when you are in the new Jerusalem, a city that comes down out of heaven prepared for you by Jesus Christ himself whose designer and builder is God. You're going to be there. You're going to live there. Now, Christians, for some reason, hear that and think, oh, all right. What, you got cookies after this? What's what's going on next? (laughs) Now, I completely don't understand that, okay? Well, I guess, you know, what's heaven going to be like? I guess it's some chubby angels sitting on clouds playing harps. Right? I guess we don't even know what's going to, I guess I can only imagine what's going to happen in heaven. No, if I said, hey everybody, let's go on a trip to New York City. You know what everybody in this room would start doing? If you really thought you were going to New York City, you'd be on Priceline.com looking for the best hotel deals by the end of the night. You'd be yelping what restaurants am I going to go to, what tours. If I said, let's go to London, you'd start looking up London. I said, let's go to Tokyo. You'd be like, Tokyo, what's that like? You'd want to learn some Japanese phrases so you could communicate with people in Tokyo. Because if you really thought you were going there, you'd get your passport, you'd start getting prepared. I've been saying here at church, let's go to Israel. Let's go to the old city. Let's go to the old Jerusalem. I've been saying that. And already, people at church are walking up to me. I mean, we're talking about a trip that's next summer, and they're walking up, and they're like, wow, so when we go to, when we go to Jerusalem, are we going to go here or are we going to go here? Like, they've been studying already. They haven't even signed up for the trip, but they're planning their free day on the trip already. I mean, that's how into it they are. Like, so do we go here or do we go here? Like, they're trying to evaluate if this trip is going to be worth their time based on what they've learned on the Internet about Jerusalem one night, right? Because they know they're going there. They're excited about it. Hey, you can study the Bible and you can learn about a city you will live in for all of eternity. So why aren't we just like tearing through the book, trying to figure out where am I? You're preparing a place for me? What can I know about the place that Jesus is preparing for me? Like I'm going to spend eternity? I can't even fathom eternity. I'm gonna spend that in this city, the new Jerusalem? Man, what can teach me? What can you tell me about the New Jerusalem? I wanna know everything there is to know. I wanna start preparing right now. Well, let's let's keep reading and let's learn about this city that's gonna come down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. Jump down into verse nine, okay? And before we even get into it, let's put this down for point number two. Let's anticipate your place in the new Jerusalem. Let's start thinking of this as a city that you are going to travel to. You're going to travel outside of space and outside of time into a new heaven and a new earth. We call it the age to come. And you're going to live in the new Jerusalem where Jesus has prepared a place that has your name on it, a place designed with you in mind, okay? Now let's start reading about your future home. We call it heaven. New Jerusalem is a better way to say it. Look here at Revelation 21 verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and he spoke to me saying, come, I want to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now when he's going to show us the bride, the wife of the lamb, what is he going to show us? Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me The holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So here's an angel saying, I want to show you the bride of Jesus. And then what he shows, the apostle John who writes this vision that he sees in Revelation here, he shows him the city that you're going to live in, the new Jerusalem. And he sees it coming down out of heaven. And this city, the whole thing, has the glory of God. It's radiance. It's like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It's like you're picking out a diamond. It's like you're picking out a diamond ring, and the clearer the ring gets, the more expensive the ring gets. Well, here's a city that we can see coming down out of heaven, and this city is so radiant, it's so clear, it's glowing like a diamond. That's the idea here. Just the most beautiful thing, just something that will take your breath away as you look at it. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, there were three gates. On the north, there were three gates. On the south, there's three gates. And on the west, there's three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. okay? Verse 15, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates. So now we're going to start giving you the dimensions of the future city. Now, can you picture the skyline of New York City at night when it's all lit up? Can you see one of those beautiful pictures that, that we, sometimes you'll see around when the, of, the, of the twin towers in New York City, like before they went down? Like those beautiful pictures of a city where you think, wow, look at how awesome that city looks. I'd like to go there, and every city has their own distinctive skyline. That's what the Bible's trying to give you here, is a picture of the skyline, of the dimensions of the city. Like, look at it. It's glowing. It's glorious. You've never seen a place like this. I mean, people get that travel bug. They want to go check out this city. They want to try the food. They want to see what the people are like. We need to get the travel bug about the New Jerusalem. And it says in verse 15, and the one who spoke with me, he's going to measure this. And then in verse 16, the city lies four square. So the length of the city is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Now look at this. Here's something key. Its length and its width and its height are all what? What does that say there? Okay, so this is a, a city is a cube, Okay. So this is a very interesting city because it's as long as it is wide as it is high. So the city is a cube with these walls all around it. And the dimensions of the length and the width and the height are 12,000 stadia. Now, in in my Bible, it gives me a little number four. And if you go down to the bottom of your page and you look at little number four down there, it says that 12,000 stadia is about how many miles? About how many? 1,380 is what it says in my Bible. About 1,400 miles. Okay? 1,400 miles. That's how big the city is. That's how long it is. That's how wide it is. That's how high it is. Okay? That's the city that's being described here. Now, I know right away, first time I ever looked this up, I ever studied it, when I was really trying to figure out where I was going to spend my eternal life with Jesus Christ, 1,400 miles, I know that distance because my parents live in San Antonio, Texas, all right? And when I was in college, I would drive out here to California because I was getting out of Texas as fast as I could back here to the West Coast. And you know how long of a drive it is from San Antonio, Texas, out here to where we are in Huntington Beach, California? It's like 1,400 miles. That's how far it is. So Jesus is building a city that's as wide, as long, as high, 1,400 miles in three dimensions. And it glows with his glory, and it's going to come down out of heaven. And somewhere in that city is a place with everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. There is a place in that city for you. Have you ever driven to San Antonio, Texas before? You can make it in 20 hours if you don't stop. And anybody who thinks that the world is overpopulated should come with me on that drive. Okay? (laughs) We got lots of room. For lots of people. Because there is a whole lot of nothing between here in San Antonio, Texas. Miles and miles of nothing. I mean, nothing. When you get... To the border of Texas. Everything is bigger in Texas, all right? And they are so proud of it out there. When you get to the border of Texas from California, that means you go through all of California, Arizona, New Mexico. You cross into Texas lines. You're halfway to San Antonio, Texas. Okay? From here to San Antonio, let's get in a car. And let's drive for 20 hours. And 20 hours from now, we will have reached the other side of the city that Jesus is preparing for us okay i want to see that does anybody else want to see that that blows london away guys okay (laughs) new york city is like the very teeny tiny apple compared to the new jerusalem okay i mean now that's not the end of the description that's just the physical dimensions look at verse 17 he also measured its wall. 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, in case you were wondering if we had different standards. And the wall was built of jasper, while the city was, check this out, the city was what? Pure gold. Now, it's an interesting kind of gold, like clear glass do you get the when you say like clear glass do you get the uh, impression that sometimes when John is trying to describe for us the glory of God he's giving us the best that we've got in our language to describe something that is beyond description well it's like gold well it's like glass it's just so beautiful the foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase. I don't even know how to pronounce some of these. The eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelfth Twelve gates were twelve pearls. The gates are made with pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. Where do you find pearls that big? And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I would do a 3,000-piece puzzle of this city. I mean, this is amazing. And I saw no temple in the city For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Check this out. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. No electricity bill in eternity by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life I'm here to tell you tonight that if you believe that Jesus is the Christ who died for your sins and rose again if you have really trusted in Jesus you will be in that city someday maybe soon. Maybe we're the fools whose life is required of us tonight. And we're going to experience the glory of God in a place that Jesus is preparing that someday he is going to unveil and you should anticipate that you will be there, okay? Now, that's an amazing description, and I love to think about it. And I hope that all of us will try to learn more and more about what heaven is going to be like. But the best thing about heaven is not where we are going, but who is going to be there. Go back to John chapter 14 and look what the real selling point is. It's amazing to think that he's preparing a place for us. I guess, I guess the strategy of following Jesus around that these 11 disciples had... I guess eventually they were going to need to settle down somewhere. So the fact that Jesus is preparing a dwelling place for them, that makes a lot of sense. But here's the real kicker. Here's the real punchline of the promise that Jesus makes to his people that if he goes and prepares this place of the New Jerusalem, I will come again. That's what Jesus says. Promise. Going to happen. Put it on the front page of the New York Times. I will come again. And will take you to myself. Here's why. Here's the whole goal. That where I am, you may be also. Okay? So Jesus has said something. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you know who he is, if you believe in what he did, it presents to you a future. A future outside of space and time, in a city, where you will be with Jesus. And he promised to come again to get you, to take you to be with him. That is a promise of Jesus Christ. So if you trust him and believe in him, you will believe in the promise of his second coming and you will live like Jesus is coming back. And when does the Bible say that Jesus is coming? When does it say? See, it doesn't give us the date. It doesn't give us the time. It doesn't let us procrastinate till the 11th hour. No, it says it like this. Soon, as in in any moment, imminent. It could happen at any time. That's how it says it. And so the Christian people, we're supposed to be looking for it to happen like we're waiting for it, like we're expecting it to happen. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I just want to ask you, how much time did you spend this week waiting to see Jesus? How much time did you think this week about Jesus coming back to get you? This is something we're supposed to be thinking as Christians. In fact, what's sad is that a lot of the Christians 2,000 or so years ago, they seem to be thinking this a lot more than we're thinking it 2,000 years later. I mean, the Thessalonians, they were known for expecting Jesus to come back. In fact, in chapter 4, they get concerned when someone in their church dies because they're like, oh, no, he died before Jesus came back. I mean, what a different perspective than what we have today. Look what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's start in in verse 8. This is a a book we studied when we began our church. It says, For not only has the word of the Lord or the gospel sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, which is the modern-day nation of Greece, like not only are people talking about the gospel echoing and ringing out from you guys all over Greece, but you have become an example to all the believers and then it says, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. People are talking about how you believe in Jesus so that we don't even need to say anything about you. For they themselves, other people, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turn to God from idols, repenting and turning to God to serve the living and true God, and how you wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Like all over Greece, people are talking about how you guys believe the gospel and how your faith now is just echoing and resounding. And there's one thing that everybody in Greece seems to know about you guys. It's like you guys are waiting for Jesus to come back. It's like you guys are so obsessed with this idea that at any moment, Jesus is going to return and take you home to be with him. Like, you really believe it. People know that about you. That's what it says here about this church in Thessalonica. Now, when it says in verse 10 here, to wait for his son, here, here's a Greek word that, that, that is, it's on a meno. Now, we already taught you meno, so we're not really teaching you a new word right now, okay? Just one, one Greek word of sermon, all right? Meno, right? Meno means what? You wrote it down earlier. What? To remain or to stay. Now when you put ano, this this little prefix on it here, that means to upon, right? To remain upon. So I'm not moving. I'm not going anywhere. I'm waiting. I'm staying right here until it happens. Like I'm waiting till I see Jesus. That's just where I live, right there. Just waiting for him to come back. That's what people were saying about these guys. Like you're just remaining upon the same point. You're never moving from it. That you, it's like you're expecting at any moment to see Jesus. You're ready for it. Point number three, let's get it down like this. We need to stay ready for the second coming. If you've given up hope, if you've lost faith, if you've stopped thinking that Jesus is coming back, that he could come back in your lifetime, that he could come back this week, that tonight could be the very night that Jesus returns. If you've stopped thinking that, it's time to start thinking it once again. It's time to be ready, to stay dressed for action, to be one of those who has their lamps burning because the master is coming back. And what kind of a servant do you want to be? See, it talks about a master who goes to a wedding. Now, I've been to all kinds of different weddings. We had a great wedding here today, right? Uh, But but, uh, some weddings, you're like, get me out of here. Some weddings, you're like, I could stick around. I like this, right? You don't know when the master's coming back but the servant is the servant going to be standing at the door ready for the master how many stories does jesus tell in the new testament about a master who's been gone a long time and the servants are starting to wonder if he's ever really coming back and some of the servants are fighting amongst themselves and some of them are getting drunk and some of them are beating each other up and who is going to be the servant the master finds ready when he comes insert your name here Jesus is asking the question through the Scripture to you tonight. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Will you be ready for him? Or will you be surprised? Oh, I can't believe it's actually happening. That's not the description of the Christian in the New Testament. They're waiting for it. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Everybody, grab your Bible. It's a few pages over to the left. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, page 982. If you got one of our books, look at how it describes it here. That Christians are people who are waiting for Jesus to return. And it says here, but our citizenship, the country that we really belong in a place that we really call home. Philippians 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in, where does it say there? Where? It's in heaven. The new Jerusalem, we could say, is the city we will reside in. And from it, we await a Savior. We have this eager anticipation that a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to come. I'm waiting for him. He's coming from my home. He's going to get me, and he's going to take me there to be with him. And he's gonna, when he comes, he's going to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Hey, one thing that's really exciting about living in the new Jerusalem is you get a new body. You go from this mortal body to an immortal, imperishable, incorruptible body that Jesus gives you when he makes you perfect as he is perfect, when you share in the glory that you will see that is Jesus Christ. And it describes a people who think of heaven so much as their home, that that's where they belong. Like, they're just waiting. Like, I'm talking about how little kids wait for Christmas. You know what I'm talking about? How they wait for their birthday. I'm talking about, like, the childlike faith that little kids have when something so exciting is about to happen. Like, where they say to you, Dad, I won't even be able to sleep tonight. And they ain't just saying that. They really mean it. You know what I'm talking about? Like, this week... Uh, My son, he got to go on a field trip, and this wasn't just any field trip. He was going to go out on the Pacific Ocean on a boat. Coolest field trip he's ever had in his life. Because apparently our neighbors over here, Boeing, they gave a bunch of money to the fifth graders. And now all the fifth graders are going down to the Ocean Institute in Dana Point. And my son, he loves animals. And he's going to go behold the glory of the Lord out in the Pacific, pods of dolphins, seals, and sea lions. Dad, we're going to dissect a fish. You can just see the excitement as he's telling me about this. My son thinks he talks to animals, you guys. All right. And he's like, Dad, we gotta be at church, we gotta be at school by six o'clock in the morning. And he is telling me this. And I'm thinking, wow, what time am I gonna have to wake up to get him there? And at six o'clock. How am I gonna wake up that early? Let me tell you how I was gonna wake up that early. Because he's standing by the side of my bed. He's fully dressed, he's ready to go. We're going to go see the glory that is under the sea, Dad. We drive to Newland Elementary School. It is pitch dark. There is no one there. We are the first people at the field trip. We are holding down the school parking lot in the middle of the night. We are waiting for the glory. Dad, you don't understand, Dad. Dolphins the glories of the ocean revealed. See, if we were as excited about seeing eternity as my son is, about seeing what's under the sea, we would see a revival here at this church. We would be so heavenly minded, we might start to become some earthly good around here. Because we'd be running around thinking, fool, tonight your soul is required of you. And who's ready to go? who's ready to meet Jesus tonight. That's how the church is supposed to be. We're waiting. We're hanging on it. Like today is going to be the day that I'm going to see my Savior face to face. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Turn to one more passage with me. Hebrews chapter 9, because I want to just speak for a minute to those who are troubled among us. I want to speak for a minute to those who... You don't know, as we talk about heaven and as we try to get more and more encouraged and more and more excited, maybe some here among us are getting more and more uncomfortable because we're bringing up what happens after you die, or maybe you're not even going to wait until you die. Maybe Jesus is going to come back and he's going to get his people, and if he comes and gets his people, am I one of his people? Is my loved one one of his people? Are my kids one of his people? See, now we start bringing up what the things that really matter about life, the state of people's souls and where they're going to spend eternity and now we start thinking about is my treasure in heaven is their treasure in heaven who's ready to go to heaven and I know that might be making some of us tonight uncomfortable because when it comes to heaven we don't know we don't have assurance we don't have faith And it says it like this, here in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Here's a verse that is true. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And it says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes what? I mean, I don't know why we're trying so hard to avoid the topic of death in America. Because it says that it's appointed that every man is going to die, and after that comes judgment. Or we're saying, maybe even before then, Jesus is going to come. I mean, this is something we need to talk about. When I was doing a youth ministry, when I was hanging out with the young people, they had this statement that really drove me crazy for a while. Maybe you remember all the young people were saying it. YOLO. Anybody remember when the young kids were saying that? YOLO. You only live once. And it was like some twisted carpe diem of the new generation, right? You only live once, which basically meant, like, so do crazy stuff right now and sin and live it up because you only live once. Yeah, we made shirts in our youth ministry, you only live once. And then it said, then what? Question mark, right? Yeah. Hebrews nine twenty-seven, right? Yeah, there it is. YOLO, it's in the Bible, right? <laughs> you only live once. And after that comes, yeah, busted, right? <laughs> And look this, if you are concerned about the fact that you only lived once, you should be concerned about that. If you are afraid of dying, well, let me just tell you quite honestly, if you don't know Jesus, you should be afraid of dying. Because after death comes judgment. But it says this in verse 28, So Christ, having been offered once, yeah, he lived once, And he offered himself as a sacrifice to bear the sins of many. You can put your faith in Jesus. He is the Christ. And he died for your sins and rose again. Tonight could be the night that you trust in Jesus to save you. And here's what it says about Jesus. That Jesus, yeah, he only lived once, but he will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. No, he already dealt with sin. Now, when he comes, he comes to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And I want to be that person. And I want you to be one of those people. I want everybody to hear tonight to have the blessed assurance that if your soul was required of you tonight, you are no fool because you have put your trust in Jesus Christ. And you know where you're going. You know the name of the city you know who runs the place, who lights the place up with his glory and you can't wait to see Jesus. And I know that that could happen for you tonight. So we're going to remember Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and we are going to take communion here tonight. And this is a special time for us to remember Jesus's death for us on the cross. For us to remember that we have put our faith in Jesus as the Christ and that gives us assurance full confidence that we will be with him in heaven that he will come and get us and take us to the place he is preparing for us. So this is a symbol for all of us who have put our faith in Jesus to remember his his blood in the cup and to remember his body in the bread and for us to celebrate our blessed assurance that we have in Christ. And if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you just let the symbol pass and tonight is the night for you to pray to God and ask him to give you that faith that you would put your trust in Jesus Christ, that you would know that you're gonna be with him in heaven. So let me pray as the ushers come forward and then we'll uh, pray together, we'll listen to a song together and then we'll come back as the elements are passed and then we'll come back and take communion all together. Let me pray for us. God, we just wanna praise Jesus Christ here tonight. We wanna give him the glory as the one who suffered once for all, who died for our sins, who rose again. It was his blood that was shed to wash our sins away. It was his body that was broken so that we might be healed and saved. So God, we remember Jesus Christ and we proclaim his death until he comes. And God, I pray that we here at Compass Bible Church would be waiting for Jesus to come back, that we would know tonight that our best days with Jesus are ahead of us. And God, I pray if there's people here tonight and I know that there are, God, and I beg you right now for the souls of those who don't know Jesus who haven't yet trusted in him, who when we talk about Jesus returning or we talk about death and judgment, God, that brings up so many uncomfortable emotions and and, and awkward feelings or maybe just even terror and dread. God, I pray that people would have faith, that you would grant people faith tonight in Jesus Christ, that they would have the assurance of things hoped for, that they would have the confidence of things not seen, that people would know that someday they will live in a place where there are streets of gold, like pure, clear glass, the city of Jesus Christ, the new Jerusalem. Give us this blessed assurance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: vity See you.